Welcome to Eurovision Song Context, a podcast about taste, identity, and the ins and outs of ESC. In every episode, I chat with a special guest, and we eventually talk about a few submissions we really loved or really didn't. Today, I'm joined by Charlie Harding from the Switched on Pop podcast. We'll talk about maintaining vision in song craftsmanship, the myth of the singular pop song creator, and Eurovision at The Hague. We'll also talk about some iconic submissions from 1974, 1988, 2007, 2013, and 2015, including ABBA, Mans Zemmerlo, Verka, DJ Bobo, Netta, Emily DeForest, and Celine Dion. This time around, Charlie and I listen to music that I can't sample on the podcast, especially ABBA's Waterloo and Honey Honey, Tame Impala's Elephant, and the Beatles' Obla D Obla Da. Check these out and all the others in your podcast description or at the show page at eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm. Welcome, Charlie Harding. Thank you so much. Happy to join you. Oh, I'm so excited. So you are a songwriter. Is that right? Yeah, I write songs. I produce songs. Yes. Excellent. And pop, I presume. Yeah, I, I think pop is a very broad category. And so I, I aim to write things that are largely in the world of popular music. Excellent. Excellent. I'm so excited to have you on. I have a massive question for you, which we will get to later. But um, you are half of Switched on Pop, which is an amazing, amazing podcast. And yeah, and apparently like Anna Wintour is also a fan personally. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm looking at I don't know if fun. that's true. I was honored to be named one of Vogue's best podcasts of the year. I do think that if they saw my wardrobe, they might rescind that. So please don't tell <laughs> them. I don't think it was Anna herself, but uh, let's pretend. That's the way I choose to imagine it. Yeah. Um, I do wonder what Anna Wintour's an podcast, you know, like what her Spotify looks like, what her podcast list looks oh, like. Oh, I would love to know. They need to. I feel like one thing Vogue does really well is uh they, they've they've got great sort of expository interviews about exactly this kind of stuff, you know, like the what's in your bag sort of style journalism. I want them to turn that on. <laughs> I want to know what's on her playlist. I love that. Every time I do a podcast, I get an idea for another podcast. And I now I think there's like a place for a whole spinoff Eurovision podcast of like what's in your bag. Um, I'm thinking about the various Eurovision artists and I'm definitely like wondering what's in Verka's bag. But yes, that's that's an entire class of journalism. I'm with you. I think a lot of listeners of this podcast would either love Switched on Pop or are already listening to it. Thank you. Um, yeah. There are episodes of Switched on Pop I go back to regularly. Uh, one oh. is the the Last Christmas episode. Oh, that was really special. Yes, with Chili Gonzalez, the exceptional uh, keyboardist who uh, you might know for his production in the world of, of Feist or Daft Punk, um, but his solo piano is amazing, and he had this uh, just thrilling uh 
Christmas album, which is a very rare thing to achieve. Everybody makes a Christmas album. Few break through. And his solo piano rendition of Wham's Last Christmas is a treat. I mean, people should listen to it all seasons. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, I think Last Christmas is the kind of song as I just think about it as being like naff. I don't know any, I don't know an American equivalent of that. Like it's gloriously naff, right? Like I don't, I don't think I'm not saying mediocre by any, by any stretch of the (laughs) imagination. It's just, wow. Wowzy wow. Isn't that kind of what so much Eurovision music is like? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Right. It's like, just like, there's so much earnestness paired with commercial intent and I think that the combination of those two for certain people is sensational. And for other people, it can really rankle them and cause ire. Uh, that that combination, that naffness is something special. It is something special. I think it elicits it's, strong reaction. Well, this is it. It does elicit a strong reaction for pop music, which, as I understand it, is intended to be palatable by the greatest number of people people possible, right? Popular music. Like, I don't want to get too academic, but when you say (laughs) popular about other things, you just mean a lot of people consume them or a lot of people would like them, right? Yeah, I think that definition makes sense. A lot of people would like them, but I don't think necessarily pop music is aiming to reach the most amount of people. I think pop music can... Pop music does have the intent of reaching many, not the few that is where the popular comes from yeah but oftentimes popular music is designed to also uh detract certain styles of listeners your parents are not supposed to like rock and roll right your parents are not supposed to like uh uh you know what contemporary sound of trap music the every generation has new sounds which are sort of designed to create generational differences and so i think pop music is yes it's 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 meant to reach a lot of people, but not necessarily everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, distinctly remember forcing my father to listen to They Might Be Giants Flood on like an eight hour road trip. And I think he probably wanted to scratch his eyes out for most of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was that was the fun of it. Right. That was the fun of it, because like who wants to listen to like Crosby, Stills and Nash for seven hours? I, I know I would. That's some beautiful vocals. Uh, but to, uh, to be fair, yeah, every I feel like mu- music's job can both be uh, something that brings us together or it can also be the thing which intentionally divides us. Both can create listening communities, right? What you listen to is just as important as what you don't listen to. Oh, for sure. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and sure. I think I think really great artists kind of know where those lines are uh, in just a few days. I don't know when this episode will be released, but in just a few days from this recording, uh, Lil Nas X is going to be releasing his next song called J Christ. We haven't heard it yet, but I have a feeling like many of his earlier songs, it is, it is set to cause controversy by evoking religious imagery, which is probably uh, there to both offend and provoke and encourage thought about acceptance and who's allowed within certain spaces and it's gonna blow up i bet yeah absolutely absolutely you said beautiful vocals what's your when you when a song resonates with you Uh. what's what resonates with you because i you know you write as well um i know a lot of eurovision fans love like just vocal purity just vocal Mm. purity so Mm -hmm. 
oh, I don't want to say something like Whitney Houston because that's very, that's dated. It's a dated reference. But Celine Dion is maybe the classic example or France puts out just, you know, crystal beautiful vocals year (laughs) on year. Yeah. Uh, obviously, contemporary popular music uh, is 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 designed to emphasize the vocal. The arrangement is built around the voice, carving out frequencies that the voice stands out above all else. In fact, hmm. we just reported a story on Switched On Pop about the decline of vocal harmony groups. Uh, the idea that um, not only have groups receded into the background as solo artists have become prominent. Uh, over the last many decades, but even the idea of multi-part harmonies where each harmony is equally as important as the other, meaning sort of like no particularly lead melody, that idea is just not popular in popular music because at the center is that that lead melody, that vocal the uh, of, of the artist singing their true heart out, singing the lyrics that, you know, supposedly they wrote or didn't write, doesn't really matter. <laughs> supposedly um, they wrote. I don't mean that as a, as a judgment. It's just a sort of weird expectation that we have in pop music that like popular music has always been crafted by teams from the very beginning of the, when I think of American popular music, whether it's you know, the uh, Tin Pan Alley era, Bill Building era, uh, or in the contemporary era, there's always been teams of songwriters, but um, really coming out of the 60s, maybe the folk scene and the sort of the rock scene of that era, there, there still is this expectation that um, the true artist is the individual artist that writes their own lyrics. And uh, in reality, you know, Frank Sinatra did not write his lyrics. Billie Holiday uh, was often an interpreter of song. Many of the greats are interpreters of, of, of music. Many of our Eurovision stars that we'll talk about certainly are. But to answer your question about what do I love, I just look up for a thing that uh, provides delight. And I, it could be in any par- portion of a song. It might be a vocal performance. Oftentimes it is. Um, it might be just the particular turn of melody. But oftentimes it's something which uh, takes a familiar concept and turns it on its head in a new way. And that could be in any portion of of music, whether that's lyric, melody, rhythm, harmony, form, timbre, all of those qualities. There's just often that moment where something kind of scratches your brain in that amazing way. And those are the things I try to turn into on Switched On Pop. Yeah, excellent. That that just makes me think of so many things. Like when you said uh, harm part harmonies are dead harmonies are dead i was like yeah barbershop quartets right like but yeah, it was a it was a moment where it was a very popular style of music uh and, and even you know in the in the sort of pre-war era of popular music there were large vocal harmony groups uh, certainly even the doo-wop era right vocal harmonies were sort of the center oh, um, i love this doo-wop group i don't know yeah. if you know them they're cuban they're called los oh. zafiros no, so cool. I would love to listen. Oh, Cuban doo-wop. I, I, wow. They were huh. really popular in the 60s. I wonder whether some of that is cultural, right? How do you feel about harmonies in, in foreign bands? Like, what about something like BTS? What do you well, hear uh, in, in their music? Because there's like a lot of international music that I still think mm-hmm. is maybe less individual. Yeah, certainly. Uh, we, we, we've seen a huge amount of success in the world of, of K-pop um, where uh, the the intermingling of, of friendship and multiple multiple members um, is, is an extremely successful way of, of, of building fan bases and, and, and loyal audiences. Uh, even in the United States, I think about um, the success of Boy Genius this year, where uh, you know this sort of super group of, of three women who 
actually open their album in three-part harmony. So uh, there there is room for harmony. But even when you look at uh, a group like BTS, um, the the model of that style sing- of singing is usually a clear lead vocalist, often trading verses. And even in the choruses, we're not talking about... Um, it's a different style of vocal harmony where still the lead is really the front and center and everything else is in support of that lead harmony at any given moment. Um, So when when we track vocals today, um, a great artist would, for example, be like Ariana Grande. She she has videos showing how she tracks her vocals. Uh, Oftentimes you'll go not just one lead vocal, you'll have uh, 50, 60, up to 100 tracks of supporting vocals that are there to back up that lead vocal. And that's going to be, uh, include harmonies. It's going to include doubles, sometimes a whisper track, they'll literally whisper the melody. They might sing an octave above, an octave below, but really the effect is to highlight the lead as opposed to uh, thinking of a style of melody like counterpoint, like a, a Bach style of writing where each voice is independent in each each melody in the harmony is equally as important as the other. And I think that style of writing um, is, is just not particularly popular in, in any mainstream popular music uh, that, that I'm aware of. It, 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 ha- it happens. I don't, I don't mean to say it, there's plenty of counterfactuals, I'm sure, but it's, it, is, it is certainly um, a, 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 um, a rare occurrence that that is a, a very popular way of writing today. Yeah, I mean, if I had to go back, I guess I think and I don't know enough musically, but I'm kind of reminded of groups like the Osmonds or the Jackson Five or something, maybe mm-hmm. for an equal, maybe yeah, something that's closer to what you're talking about. I think, you, you, and you mentioned CSNY. I think about like the song "Teach Your Children." Like that is about the the harmony of the full group. It's not about the the center lead being being the focus and everything supporting it around it. Which brings us to ABBA. There's a great switched on pop. Uh, episode on ABBA, just like amazing, super amazing. And and I loved the way that you isolate the different, you know, you you isolate the tracks so I can hear what each person is doing Mm. there. Mm, mm. Um, I've asked you to listen to Waterloo, which is a Eurovision Mm -hmm. winner, Uh, the the er Eurovision winner, the Eurovision winner (laughs) to end all Eurovision winners. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I don't see the appeal of this song. And it might just be me. I think kind of the wall of sound disco-iness is not there. This to me is a popular song in its truest sense. I mean, I, I can imagine that maybe they weren't quite as developed in, in, in their music at the time. Um, I can't imagine Dancing Queen. I don't know. I can't imagine Dancing Queen being a Eurovision winner, for example. But what do you mm. hear in Waterloo? I don't hear a lot of ABBA in Waterloo. Like, yeah, maybe. Well, yeah. Do you mind if I uh, just put it on briefly? I just like to get it in my ear. It's always helpful. Oh, yeah. Put it on briefly. Yeah. I should say, I, I listen to all of your other songs in incredible depth. And Waterloo is like, oh, I know Waterloo very well. So I just, I, I, I actually didn't listen to it this morning. So I just want to get it in my ear. Yeah, you're fine. Gosh, what is that? I'm realizing now. What is that opening riff? I'm realizing that a very popular indie pop song borrows that. Oh. <gasps> Yeah, Elephant by Tame Impala is Waterloo. <laughs> That's just what my ear does now. It's like I hear references everywhere. I love Waterloo. No! 
on re-listen, I think they had me until the saxophone, the jazzy saxophone. <laughs> I think it's the jazzy saxophone it's, now that's done it to me. I, this I is don't the thing. know. The song is so maximalist. Like, it is so harmonically rich. They're moving through so many chords. It almost has more in common. And the verse is almost like prog rock. Like, I think of, like, the band yes yeah. we have so many so much instrumentation moving so many chords all these intricate harmonies and then the chorus has you know it's kind of like a 50s rock and roll throwback yes yeah with, with a walking bass line and then even the da dun da dun da dun da dun which is <laughs> now that i realize it the same uh little uh fill that we get in um all i want for christmas is you by Mariah carey da dun da dun da dun da dun because both because both what the both are trying to evoke this like er, this this earlier time waterloo is a very nostalgic kind of song it's both contemporary like it feels very 70s but it also feels very 50s at the same time and i think so many eurovision songs uh, are looking to the past to claim some kind of authenticity yeah i like waterloo because of its maximalist approach. Like I the, the saxophone is I think to a contemporary listener ridiculous, but it also for me feels like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and Clarence Clements and like this over the top wall of sound kind of hyper energetic vibe. It's a very silly song. I I don't understand Waterloo. Like it doesn't make any logical sense to me. I don't know why we're singing about Napoleon and what this has to do with um, contemporary popular music. I don't know if there's any other pop songs that talk about Napoleon. <laughs> um, but 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 then again, you know, perfect Eurovision winner because Eurovision, I often think as a post-war institution, not unlike the United Nations as a way of yes. uh, bringing yes. nations together to cr- create peace and compete over the frivolities instead of, uh, you know, over war. So maybe maybe it is the in, in that way the perfect or Eurovision song. I had always thought it was because there must there must be an expression, right? So I now have British citizenship, and when people say, "Oh, mm. that was my Waterloo," you know, I assume it's like an expression that people Waterloo is shorthand for the battle that lost the war. <laughs> you know, I'm realizing now though. Yes, obviously there's a metaphor here, like for some sort of defeat in a relationship. Yeah, but this song so overly explains itself. <laughs> Right, like, like it actually explains the metaphor. It says, my, my, at Waterloo, my, my, at Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender, oh yeah, and I have met my destiny in quite a similar way. The history book on the shelf is always repeating itself, Waterloo, I was defeated, you won the war. It's like, it's all, I don't mean to be cruel, because especially when looking at any Eurovision song, we're, we're looking about at so often English in translation made yeah. for a national audience of non-native English speakers. Yeah. Uh, obviously, ABBA are, are very fluent in English, but this over-description of metaphor feels almost like asking an AI to write a song. There's there's no nuance in it. And oftentimes that is what's great about a Eurovision song. Yes, it's not yeah, about nuance. No, it's no, about no nuance in Eurovision. Yeah, it's it's over the top. It's like it's it's in your face, it's direct, it's silly, it's wonderful. It makes me a little bit heartbroken for metaphor because I I mean presumably a lot of <laughs> a lot of songs use metaphor and the point is that you can save space. It's a space saver. 
to explain a larger concept. But then if you use the metaphor and then fully explain the larger concept, you've 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 ruined the point of using a right. metaphor. I don't know. And I, <laughs> saying and I have met my destiny in quite a similar way, in quite a similar way is so funny as opposed to just like you are my Waterloo is a stronger lyric just to say you are my Waterloo. I think I'd have to think about songs with preambles, but I, yeah, I do, it's a pre, it's a preamble. Okay. So when you say Bach <laughs> and sure. um, you talked quite a lot in ABBA episode on um, ABBA, disco mm. mixed with polka, and we're not talking about Waterloo, just ABBA in general, cheesiness mm -hmm. and maximalist. When you said maximalist, I think you said Bach. And to me that, that, Reminds oh. me of something Baroque, just a lot going on. Sure, um, sure. I'm sure you remember Amadeus, the movie where he says too many notes. The guy <laughs> says to Mozart, too many notes. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what prevents this from being too many notes? If, if that's your style, where, where have you? <laughs> I don't know if there is an issue of too many notes. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't have really hard and fast rules for what makes good music i'm more interested in what is the song trying to communicate what references is it using to do so uh is it communicating its things successfully and so uh if you're trying to make something which is over the top and maximalist too many notes is probably the right way to get there whereas if you're trying to say something simple and serene fewer notes will probably be uh more effective i'm actually not mad about this over explanation of metaphor here i i think <laughs> in the style of the dun 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 dun, dun like, uh, great, explain yourself. Tell me exactly how you feel. And, and, you know, if we are trying to reach the largest audience, which probably is uh, more of the goal of Eurovision than it is of maybe some other styles of pop music, maybe you need to over-explain yourself. I, I think that the song is doing what it needs to do with the objectives that it has set out, which is, you know, win Eurovision, win people over. For the record, Napoleon did not surrender at Waterloo. Just so you're aware, I found that out <laughs> yesterday. He lost at Waterloo, but surrendered somewhere else. Well, I only have seen the film Napoleon, which is full of historical errors. So I have no idea what he did, when and where. But uh, I feel like I'm immersed in his world, having spent three hours with him very recently. Oh, dear. Yeah. Apologies to the French. I feel like we're going to have <laughs> French listeners that are now irritated. Yeah, the B side of Waterloo was Honey, Honey. I don't know if you remember Honey, Honey. Is it a forgettable song for you? Do not, you don't have to listen to it. It's fine. Unless you Can want to. Can I listen to. to it for a second? Yeah, listen to it for a second. Oh my God. Immediately, it's, um, listen to this. Oh, <laughs> bloody, oh, blada. Boom, bum, 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 bum. That bass line is very Paul McCartney, oh, bloody, oh, blada. Eh, it's a fine song. I think that the vocal evokes the feeling of Honey, Honey. It's very smooth and, Syrupy. Yeah, the, yeah, the voice is syrupy. And so uh, the sort of rock and roll cheese bass line um, and predictable chord progression makes it a bit saccharine. But if this is a song about sweetness, maybe that works. Yeah, I mean, just strategically, this is the song I would have sent to Eurovision in hopes of winning. But yeah, clearly mm. I would have been wrong, right? <laughs> you would have destroyed history. You have to be careful with this time machine that you operate. Yeah, yeah, glad. We, 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 could have, we could have no ABBA. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah, that would be absolutely a tragedy. Uh, <laughs> all right. So from there, this is the big question that I wanted to ask you. So I was reading this book on industrial design by Don Norman. Do you know Don mm. Norman? I don't believe so. No. Okay. Well, he's famous because he writes about. Oh bad yes, yes, yes. I'm, sorry, doors, I'm looking him up and the Norman uh, doors. Uh, oh, of course, the Norman doors. I love the story of the Norman doors. The doors which are designed poorly, and you push when you should pull. Um, and I think I've seen his book, The Design of Everyday Things. Yes, he's super known for that. At some point, I deal with tech, so I was reading it for mm. web design, which is different. But oh, a, mean, yeah. a lot of his design comes from physical design, right? Like the Kikoman soy bottle or the OXO mm. peeler, potato peeler, or things that people- Love my OXO. See? And that it's the, <laughs> it's that feeling that you get when you have a great product, right? Like- um, Sure. Italians love their little Bialetti coffee machine, <laughs> little <laughs> stovetop thing. So what he basically says in this book called Emotional Design is that true art can only be created by a single person and that vision has to be theirs. However, popular things have to go through committee and in that process you create something popular, like as in consumable by many people, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. popular, but its chances of being are diminished, right? Okay. okay. So to get an OXO peeler, you have to go through a million different. Sure. Right. It's lovable. It's not art. Is the same true of pop music? Yeah. This feels to me a bit like using a heuristic from industrial design to explain the entirety of the world of art. And I, while I obviously respect um, his thinking as an industrial designer, and, and you know, I think probably as as an as an art, a certain type of artist as well, I think in this quote, the words art and committee are very weighty. They're doing a lot of work. And okay. I can appreciate in the world of industrial design, you need products to go through many hands. You need right. that peeler to be held in small hands, large hands, hands of all kinds in order to know that it's going to work for, for many people uh, you need to work out all of the hard edges and perhaps in, and there's, there's obviously truth in what he's saying in the world of art. I think art is often uh, full of hard edges, it has things that are meant to nick and scrape and, uh, you know, and, 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 and cause uh, strong reaction. And you don't get strong reaction from something which is uh, perfectly molded to be absolutely comfortable. My concern about the heuristic, I, I'm holding here in my hand my absolutely most favorite uh, travel mug. It's by the company Fellow. It was a gift from my sister-in-law. Hmm. And it's a perfect mug in so many ways. It fits uh, the hand perfectly. It holds temperature forever. It's ceramic inside, metal outside, but has a nice matte finish. It's comfortable for the hand. It fits in your car uh, cup holder. The best thing about this mug is that, that they have designed it in a way where it has this very thin edge lip that is perfect for uh, sipping tea. I drink a lot of tea. I love tea. And it emphasizes the quality 
of the tea. It makes it such a more pleasant experience. And then it has this sort of anti-spill guard that means I can drink that tea everywhere safely and I don't pour tea all over myself. Uh, I currently also lecture at uh, NYU um, on on songwriting and production. And when I don't use my proper mug and I use a different one, oftentimes dribbles running down my chin. Okay, all, all various sensory experiences about my silly little mug. It's not silly. It's not silly. You'll be interested it, to know that there's a whole chapter in the book on on cups. Oh, oh I love it. And I know okay. chairs are. I know chairs are a very big deal. Chairs for, are a very uh, big deal because design. they're the hardest but, thing to design. Apparently, you, you, you're mm, meant to design a chair so that no one knows they're sitting in it. You, you don't feel the chair somehow. Mm, but oh, yeah, okay. That. But my my mug provides me beyond just the feeling of of being pleasant like it's it's an it's a true joy right like it enhances the experience of my tea drinking which is something that is a ritual that i love to do multiple times a day i i think it's rare that a song actually touches me in such a strong way first of all it doesn't have the the physical sensory it just has uh hearing could have visual if you are also watching a video but oftentimes music is just kind of there in the background, even more pleasant and kind of boring and not doing much to me. Anyway, yeah, I, yeah. I'm going on and on and on, but I haven't really answered your question about this sort of question of... Can art be created yeah. by in, in, in committee, I guess is what I'm... And you may tell me that all pop music is created in committee. There is no... I don't like this term committee. Okay. I think that I think that's a really false term. I think that even in an industrial design, and I I used to work in the field of technology, so I I understand design well. I think when a team is working well, you have clear leadership with deference to expertise in all of the different things that you need to make something that is complicated and requires all kinds of expertise. The multifunctional team, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think so much contemporary art is the same way. Like every film requires, most films require large teams, dozens or hundreds, sometimes now thousands of people. And, uh, you know, you might be uh, not into superhero movies like Martin Scorsese and, you know, not even call them cinema or films, whatever he says. But some of them break through and 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 are great. And any film that is great usually has a great, clear vision from the director and screenwriter, which is still a team. Yeah, yeah. And the and the film score. You know, there's there's a there's a there's a vision that that pulls us off as a team. And the entire world of art is full of workshops of artists from the classical greats like Michelangelo. Rembrandt, Titian, all had large workshops working together. Andy Warhol was famous for his factory, where obviously he had a hand in a lot of his early work, but in a lot of his later work, he was working with teams he put together. Jeff Koons, Takashi Murakami. And when we look at the world of popular music, if you go to film score, Hans Zimmer has huge teams of people that he collaborates with in order to be able to accomplish his film scores in very short periods of time. I think the person that gets the most amount of derision for this this criticism of, of, of sort of music by committee is Beyonce. Beyonce is known for collaborating with huge amounts of artists in the creation of her albums. Many producers, many writers, um, songs will go through many hands in the process. I think there's no problem in doing so. She's created some of the most essential work of the last decade with uh, Renaissance and, and, and Lemonade especially. And 
And those albums have so many collaborators, but they also have a really clear vision. So I think the, this, this, the word committee, as I said, is doing a lot of work in, okay. in, in, in Norman's statement. Like, it is, does committee mean that everyone kind of has equal vote and because of this, things get washed down? Or can things be designed effectively in a team with, with, a, with, with a clear vision? I, I absolutely think that t- collaborative creation in popular music is, is not only possible, but often essential. So many of my favorite uh, artists, I think, fail to develop their work when they um, stay singular and, and don't, don't collaborate with outside uh, folks. They don't, they don't encourage new ways of writing and, and, and thinking about music. So a very long-winded way of saying, I, I think the best songwriting in the world has often come from teams, whether that's a Lennon-McCartney or uh, you know Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rodgers and Hart, um, and 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 so much of contemporary music today is usually written with groups of people. But I don't think about them as committees. When you get a popular product right, you there's an mm. evangelism about it, and there's a ritual mm. about it. Well, as mm. well, so no. you've liked the ritual that you had with your cup. Okay, so I asked myself when I made this list. Um, I came up with a list of ten songs that had a single singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. and then other songs that were quote-unquote overproduced. <laughs> yeah, because uh, that's... Okay. And, and I mean overproduced musically. So here I am not talking sure. about staging or anything else uh, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. listeners of the podcast. Non-pop songs were excluded, so we're not looking at like metal or anything else. Metal, jazz, excluded, excluded. And here is, well, the most obvious is Verka Surduka. Um, Serduchka, probably Ukrainians will will have it. Uh, you know, I'll get email. But anyway, dancing Lasha Timbai. Great. Uh, yeah, very clear vision here for me. Single singer songwriter. Uh, some people call this. It, it is also overproduced, right? It's in the overproduced list. Uh, I would call it maximalist. <laughs> How? What totally. do you hear in this song? Well, I generally prefer your term maximalist as to overproduced. Overproduced sort of suggests that there's the right amount of production. I think the right amount of production <laughs> is the amount of production that uh, helps evoke the feeling of the song. And I love this song because it is so clear in its vision. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I don't speak the language, but I did look up the, the English translation. And my understanding is the song says, I don't speak English. Let's talk dance. The song tells you exactly what it's trying to achieve. We're going to have a good time. We're going to dance. This is not an intellectual exercise in any way. It is pure fun. It does what so many Eurovision songs do, which is nod to some sort of cultural heritage. So the fusion of sort of disco Euro pop with a with traditional accordion sort of polka kind of feel. Yeah, polka is uh, back. We're back to polka. Polka's happening. Polka's great. I love the accordion. If you say anything otherwise, and I know you have a personal relationship to the accordion in your family, but uh, be, be, you have to be careful. The The uh, association of accordion players is a very strong and um, passionate group. Uh, they do not take it well when people uh, uh, have negative words about the accordion. I love the accordion. The accordion allows keyboardists to travel. What a great thing. And, <laughs> and it has a long tradition. It's an incredibly challenging uh, instrument to play. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah. and, you get basses. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. The left hand yeah. defies any logic. 
and I think it's a quite expressive sound. Uh, anyway, this song is not about expressivity. This song is about having so much fun. Uh, it feels as though it's, it's speeding up throughout. It even has a modulation up a key, uh, you know, two thirds of the way through the song, just as any uh, over the top maximalist kind of piece needs to have. Um, it's just not pretending to be anything other than exactly what it is. And if you are upset about this song, well, you're just not having enough fun in life. Excellent. Did you, I assume you knew this song before I gave it to you. I had heard it and I immediately recognized the visual. Um, I didn't learn about Eurovision embarrassingly until probably to have, my guess is 2013 or 2014. I worked for International Human Rights Organization and I was on a team retreat. We were in The Hague. Uh, it was the most affordable place for us to all fly to from the like 10 different countries we were coming from. And we just literally chose the most affordable place to land. And that was it. And we hel- held our team retreat there. And Eurovision happened to be on the telly. And uh, I had colleagues from uh, Hungary, Russia, um, UK, Spain, all over the place, uh, all over all over Europe. I, I had colleagues also um, from Kenya, U.S., Canada, uh, and, and elsewhere, uh, New Zealand. But what was amazing was all of my colleagues that were in the Eurovision zone, Eurovision countries, which I know is not just Europe. Yeah, yeah. And they had this instant bond watching Eurovision, where they were, they, they had maybe, many of these people had never met in person before. They were from totally different nationalities. And they were like, do you remember in 1992 when, sure. when, when Portugal submitted whatever? And they were like, oh yeah, but what about this? And so the post-war institution of Eurovision and, and sort of creating the bond of European nations, wow, what a, what a success. And, and so um, I obviously, I, I explained this story both to uh, express my uh, my, my sort of immediate falling in love with Eurovision in this moment of seeing this bond that it held for my 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 colleagues, but I, it, it is also to say that I am um, quite foreign to the culture of Eurovision. I and an inter I'm an interloper from the United States. I've never lived in Europe. I don't really understand the culture of Eurovision uh, be- any better than uh, the Will Ferrell film. And having oh, you're watched halfway it. there, Charlie. You're halfway there. You're probably 90% of the way there because Thank you know you. Will Ferrell's wife is Swedish. Oh, I didn't Bringing know that. Bringing it back that. to Sweden. So he he went I, and saw it, I think, in an actual person. And I mean, oh, wow. yeah. The, the, the film very clearly is, uh, it is not a mockumentary. I think it is a, 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 a document of appreciation, uh, joy, love. It's a valentine. Yeah, it's a valentine. Yeah, it's, oh, it's a valentine. You know, with some comedy for sure. And anyway, and I've watched the, the, the uh, I've watched the competition since then, but uh, there's still so much that I don't understand. It's like when you join a fandom, yeah. when I, I'm, I'm a late joiner to this fandom. There's so much I don't understand. And so when you shared this song with me, uh, the dan- uh, dancing Lasha Tumbai, I, I don't know how it had come into my world since it was before my entry into the world of Eurovision, but perhaps its ubiquity is evidence enough for its greatness that a song from 2007, which I have no idea how it came into my life, and um, and it's never going to leave. 
No. Oh, it's an earworm. It wouldn't know. It's never leaving. Um, <laughs> even if you didn't have the visual of Verka, I think the just the audio. Yeah, yeah it's not yeah. going anywhere. And, and just briefly to your point, this is a song which is not in English. So often Eurovision winning songs are forced to operate in English as sort of the de facto language. Songs which are in their native language can perform well. But I'm sure if we looked at some statistics, we would see that you know overall we, we see way more English songs, and I think it's harder to land a, an international hit that's not in English. And this is this is one of those. Hey, Eurovision Song Context listeners, for technical reasons, we've had to split this episode into two. Carry on to the next one to listen to my conversation with Charlie Harding. 